Great. Yeah, coming out here, we were driving behind a car and it had two big U's and then three little U's next to it. I assume that means a family of Utah fans. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. Those are U's. Apparently. Anyway, it's great to be here. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be here in beautiful Salt Lake City. We, we don't have cold weather in San Diego. We, we uh, You know, cold for us is... 45 degrees at night, so uh, yeah. But we don't. We also don't have very good skiing there in San Diego. You got to go up north of LA for that. Anyway, I was asked to speak tonight on um, science and how it relates to um, the, the existence of God. Actually, the, the talk's going to have two parts. The first part will be uh, essentially why I, as a scientist, feel like belief in God is the only reasonable conclusion. And the second part of my talk will be on science, more specifically, and the Bible. And then I I assume we'll have time for a question and answer session. Okay, great. So let me give you a little bit of my background. Uh, I was raised going to church like a a traditional uh, Protestant denomination. And I was the guy who wore the robes and kind of walked around with the cross and all that kind of stuff. And I was the president of the church youth group. The only problem is I didn't believe in God. In fact, I was an atheist. And in that situation, I guess it didn't matter that I didn't believe in God to be the president of the church youth group. But anyway, so I went off to college and I was rather proud of being an atheist. I remember my uh, freshman philosophy class and we're studying Nietzsche and Nietzsche said God is dead. I'm like, yes, that's pretty awesome. But then, you know what? I started studying physics and chemistry. And because of that, I came to believe in God. All right, and, and, you know, there's this common idea out there that if you were, like, really educated and really smart, then, you know, you would put behind this, this idea, you know, God is only for the weak-minded or they're not very well educated. And, and this is a common idea. Uh, and I, believe me, I come across that, you know, in my own situation fairly often. I'll just tell a story to kind of get, give you the idea. I was in a, a van a, f- a few years ago, like eight or ten of us science professors going between venues. I can't remember what it was about at a conference. And, and one of the ladies said, Christianity, <laughs> what a stupid religion. Now, notice she's assuming that everybody in this van is on her side here. You know, just it's. So obviously, so it's, we're, we're all the, the atheists here, all laughing at these people. She said, yeah, you know, in the Bible, did you know it says that, it, that if you wear clothing with more than one material, capital punishment. What a stupid religion. And I said to her, uh, excuse me, uh, the Bible doesn't say that. She said, yes, it does. I saw it at a website. Oh, there you go. All right. That proves it. And I said, you know, a lot of people, you know, think that, that uh, you know, a, a Christian couldn't be a scientist. There's all these mis- scientific errors in the Bible. I said, I don't know, I've read through the Bible half a dozen times or so. I haven't found one yet. I don't know what they're talking about. Now, you can imagine it got really quiet in that van. Then I pulled out my Bible. <laughs> all right. Now, I, I, for you who are believers, could you find that verse, the one about uh, clothing with more than one material? I knew it was in Leviticus. I knew it was on the right-hand side of the page about halfway down. And I, quick prayer, and I found it. I read it. 
and it got even quieter there. But the, but the point is, uh, people who uh, critique Christianity as educated people wouldn't believe in it. They, they generally just don't even know what they're talking about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to present two, I guess, apparently I taught this at King's College London a few years ago. So you need to take that out of there. Okay, great. So uh, I'm going to present two perspectives. One would be the atheist perspective. Technically, Thomas Huxley wasn't an atheist. He was an agnostic. In fact, he actually invented the word agnostic. Anyway, he was a friend of Charles Darwin. He's called Darwin's Bulldog. He said, we're as much the product of blind forces as is the falling of a stone to earth, the ebb and flow of the tides. We just happened. And man was made flesh by a series of singularly beneficial accidents. So one view is it's just random stuff. And out we popped. Uh, another expression of that would come from everybody's best friend, Richard Dawkins. That was a joke. I mean, you know, <laughs> the God's illusion, all right? It's not exactly friendly to Christianity. In the universe of, of blind, force, blind physical force and genetic replication, some are going to get hurt, others are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares, it just is, and we dance to its music. Now, the question I want to ask is, is this a rational view of reality? All right, so just accidents. You know, Thomas Huxley, a long series of, of admittedly rather beneficial accidents. No rhyme, no reason, no purpose. Uh, just Now, one thing for sure is, it, even if this is true, it's a bit depressing, don't you think? In fact, you know what Nietzsche, Nietzsche who said God is dead, you know how he ended his life, right? He ended his own life. So that there you go. Uh, so now the other perspective I want to present is that of design. All right, so uh, William Paley did the watchmaker argument. So here we go. Let's imagine uh, you're walking down the street. You see, I see that thing. thinking, man, how did that get there? I don't know. There was some, you know, glass and plastic and maybe some nylon and somebody ran over it and people kicked around. A watch just popped into existence. What do you think? Now, that is, that is not a rational concept. All right, but basically what they're saying, that this is how life came to exist. Which has more intricate design and moving parts to it? This watch or the simplest living thing? The answer is the watch is much simpler. In fact, instead of the watchmaker argument, I say what we should do is we should do the 747 argument. So it's, imagine you had a, a, like a junkyard with glass and metal and plastic and wood. A tornado goes through there and out, out, out pops a 747. You know, these things don't actually happen. But there are people that believe in these kinds of things. They're called atheists. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a few examples because I teach chemistry and physics. I teach organic chemistry and biochemistry. So I'm going to just give a few examples of things that I teach in just the standard curriculum, which says to me there has to be a God. All right, let's talk about water. All right, now hopefully, given that you have the age, the, uh, this, these things don't, they never, yeah, these things never work on solids. I'm going to use my pointer. Yeah, this is my... Power pointer. All right, great. So I walk over here. Hopefully, 
If you saw H-O-H, you don't need the little help of the water there. So I just put this thing away for pointing. Anyway, now you could teach an entire one semester course just to explain all the properties that water has that no other molecule has. And every single one of those properties, if water didn't have that property, there'd be no life. And then we have to reasonably ask, okay, is this just a random thing? Or is there evidence for design here? Uh, first of all, water is bent at about 109, actually about 105 degrees. Now, logically, if you connected three things together, it'd form a straight line, but water does not, luckily for us, because if water was linear, it would boil around minus 150 degrees centigrade. Uh, we'd all be vaporized. And also, by the way, there'd be no life. Because a scientist will tell you, in order for life to exist, it could only exist between about minus 20 centigrade and about 80 centigrade. Below that temperature, there's not enough energy for chemical reactions to happen. Above that temperature, sensitive molecules simply fall apart. And water happens to be liquid across almost that entire range, but luckily for us, not the entire range. I'll explain why that's the case. Now, another thing is, in order for life to exist, it needs a solvent. It needs a liquid. You cannot base life on a gas or a solid, that's for sure. It needs to be a liquid, and that liquid needs to be able to dissolve a wide range of molecules. Now, guess what molecule absorbs a wider range of molecules than any other? Water. In fact, in order for life to exist, that solvent would have to be able to dissolve ionic compounds. Because if you can't dissolve ionic compounds, then you can't have a nervous system and you can't have communication. Of all the compounds that are liquid in the right temperature range, guess how many dissolve ions? Only one. Only water. Only water is liquid in the right range. Only water uh, dissolves ions and a wide range of other molecules. Now, luckily, water doesn't dissolve all molecules. Otherwise, we all would be a puddle, and that would be a problem. <laughs> all right, now, another property that water has is that water absorbs more heat by far than any other substance. Ten times the heat of most substances, more than twice the heat of all other substances. So... Well, if it weren't for that, then the, uh, the temperature of the Earth would go up and down by 200 degrees centigrade in any given year, and we'd be toast, uh, maybe literally toast. All right? Now, another property that water has is all other substances, all other molecules, the solid sinks and the liquid floats. Guess how many exceptions there are? Exactly one. Water is the only molecule that has this bizarre property that the solid floats. Why is that important? Well, what happens is in the winter, the warmer water sinks and the colder ice floats. Water is a good conductor of heat. Ice is a very bad conductor of heat, and it acts like a blanket. Otherwise, lakes would freeze to the bottom. Okay. But during ice ages, the oceans would have frozen to the bottom, and life would have disappeared. I could talk about the viscosity of water. Oh, another, this is really bizarre. All other substances, if you graph density versus temperature, they go like this. Guess how many exceptions there are? One. Only one, only water. Water has this property, it goes like this, and below four degrees centigrade, it goes up, and then it drops like that. And again, that's why in the winter, the colder ice then the colder water, and then the warmer water on the bottom. I'm telling you, this is design. And if you think this is just an accident, 
All right, let's, let me give you a few more examples, and I think that will start to look uh, really uh, borderly, borderline irrational. All right, now, uh, probably some of you uh, find this picture to be very disturbing, and you're, really, you're having uh, PTSD, chemistry PTSD or something like that. Now, I, I, I tell my students that uh, uh, Dmitry Mendeleev invented this chart. Uh, in fact, uh, the summer before last, I got to speak, give this lesson in the same hall where he used to teach, which was kind of cool, their gift. But anyway, uh, so, uh, so I tell them that Mendeleev invented that chart, but in my opinion, Mendeleev did not invent that chart. Guess who I think invented that chart? All right, we're talking about God. There are at least 22 elements that have a property that no other element has, and if that element didn't have that property, there'd be no life. Now, a good question is, why are there so many elements? <laughs> Again, I think I know why there's so many elements. Because there needs to be that many elements in order for life to exist. Can the atheist even explain why there are so many elements? Anyway, uh, they might say, oh, well, protons and neutrons. Now, uh, I'll just give one example here. Carbon, all right, carbon. I teach organic chemistry. The first week, uh, who was I talking to? They're taking Chem 2 right now. Who's taking Chem 2? Yeah, there you go, right? Organic. So the first week in organic chemistry, you spend uh, that week learning all the properties that are unique to carbon that no other element has. And guess what? Every single one of those properties, if carbon didn't have those properties, there'd be no life. Okay? Uh, uh, for example, carbon forms four... I want to do the pointy thing. I can't do it. Can you, you can count, though, right? You can see those four bonds. Carbon forms four bonds. Actually, it's not the only element that forms four bonds. Also, silicon forms four bonds. But the problem with silicon is if you put two silicon atoms together, that molecule explodes. It's not a very good basis for creating life. <laughs> now, you might say, so what's the big deal about having four bonds? Well, it turns out, unless you have four bonds... You don't have three-dimensional molecules, right? VSEPR theory, right? Four bonds, tetrahedral, right? So if you don't have four bonds, you don't have three-dimensional molecules. And if you don't have three-dimensional molecules, you don't have three-dimensional life. Okay, another property, this is pretty important. Another property of carbon is the only element that forms large molecules. And obviously, you have to be able to form large molecules. Now, in order for life to exist, the same element that forms four bonds has to be the element that forms large molecules. All right, and the carbon has both of those properties. And several other properties I could mention about carbon, which when I teach organic chemistry, I would go into, but it's a little bit too much detail for you right now. I, I love this, it's kind of great in, in the organic chemistry class because I can I lead out with this stuff. My students kind of figure out eventually that I'm a believer, all right? So I get to kind of like, <laughs> that's sort of cool. All right, uh, next, uh, let's talk about another element, which is iron, Fe. Iron has a property that no other element has, which is it forms a strong magnetic field. Why is that essential? Well, how else would you put your kids' homework on the refrigerator? Yeah. All right, that's essential. No, that's not why. Turns out, <laughs> it turns out that in order for life to exist, you need a source of energy. Now, that energy, that source of energy, has to come from something that's really, really hot. 
And by the way, remember I mentioned the 22 elements. Another element that has a unique property that's necessary for life is, of course, hydrogen, because it's the only element that can spontaneously fuse to produce usable energy. Now, it just so happens that almost all the energy from the sun is in the form of visible light. Lucky for us, because that's the only form of energy that can cause chemical reactions without destroying molecules. All right, but there are two kinds of energy that come from the sun that would destroy all life. One of them is that solar wind, the very high energy uh, ionized particles. But it turns out the magnetic field of the Earth is literally a force field that directs those ions away from the planet. Otherwise, there'd be no life. Now, uh, then, then I teach nuclear chemistry, and what my students learn is that iron is the most stable element in terms of its nucleus. So guess what the Earth is made out of mostly? Iron. iron. Now, here's the deal. Unless the only magnetic element was also the most common element, there still could be no life. So you got this interesting coincidence. It just so happens the most common element uh, in, a, in a rocky planet also happens to be the magnetic element. Otherwise, there'd be no life. All right. And at some point, like I said, this is why I became a believer. At some point, the evidence is overwhelming. You have to believe in God, at least if you're a scientist anyway. All right. Uh, oxygen. Now, oxygen is a great example because it turns out there's two forms of oxygen. And both forms have properties unique to those forms, both of which are necessary for life. One form you've heard of, I'm sure we call it oxygen, O2, which is the only substance that can sustain high metabolism life forms. But it just so happens there's another form of oxygen, O3, we call it ozone, which is very poisonous to life. But lucky for us, almost all of it is way up in the upper atmosphere where it absorbs ultraviolet radiation, which also would destroy life. So I say, good job, God, for inventing oxygen. That's another great invention. All right, I could talk about helium. I could talk about many others. Just one more, uranium. Now, probably you think uranium is dangerous because... It is. It's radioactive. But actually, uranium is not as radioactive as you think, really. It's the byproducts of uranium that are the main danger because uranium has a very, very long half-life, four and a half billion years. Now, the Earth is about four and a half billion years old, so roughly half the uranium was here at the beginning is still here, luckily for us. Otherwise, the Earth would be cold all the way to the middle. So, well, then you wouldn't have plate tectonics. And plate tectonics is this massive recycling system that recycles the minerals on the surface of the Earth. Otherwise, there'd be maybe at, at absolute most maybe bacteria, but uh, the Earth would be sterile. Also, if it weren't for plate tectonics, we wouldn't have an atmosphere. I think that's pretty important to life. So if you want to live on a planet with almost no uranium, Great, go to Mars. No plate tectonics, sterile surface, no atmosphere, all right? Uh, but also no life also. Uh, another property of uranium is that it's very, very dense. So we're, guess where almost all the uranium is? In the center of the Earth. 
Again, luckily for us. All right, um, I could give you other examples of elements that have properties required for life, but at some point it seems like you get the idea, okay? So let's go on to talk about a little bit of biochemistry. Now, this is one of my favorite examples. I'm guessing everybody here has heard about DNA. It's not a brand new idea to you. Now, the A, the G, the C, and the T, these represent the nucleotides, these nitric-containing molecules. Somebody has a shirt on that looks an awful lot like one of the purines I saw earlier. Where are you? It's the chemistry... Oh, the chem right, the chemistry student, yes. Anyway, uh, these letters represent these nucleotides, and the three of those nucleotides form a code that chooses an amino acid to build a protein. Now, let me ask you a common sense question. Could atoms randomly bumping, in, bumping into another create a code? That doesn't make any sense. It, it simply does not make sense that random collisions of molecules could lead to a code. And this code contains a lot of information. The, the, the a human genome has about 3 billion pairs of these things. Oh, I just keep trying to point with this thing. 3 billion pairs of these. That's a lot of information. That's the amount of information in a small library. So let's try to imagine the first life form that supposedly came about by a long series of singularly beneficial accidents. I would say, yeah, singularly beneficial. Now, the, the amount of information in a human is too much for your model. Let's take the simplest life, like an E. coli, with 100 million. Let's cut it in half, 50 million. Let's cut it in half again, 25 million. 25 million base pairs, probably not enough information to create a living thing. The, the probability of that information coming together in order to create a living thing would be like taking 25 million letters, throwing them in the air, and when they land on the ground, you could read it, and it, it would make sense. That, of course, assumes that the language already exists, but the language would kind of have to pre-exist the falling of the letters to the ground. That's crazy stuff. You know, how many times in a row would you have to throw your 25 million letters up in the air so that when it landed on the ground, you could read it? The answer is, uh, how about an infinite number of times? The probability, it basically doesn't even exist. Now, here's a cool thing about DNA. Turns out, the purpose, if you will, of DNA is to make proteins. Now, the only thing in the universe that makes proteins is DNA. But guess what the only thing that makes DNA is? Proteins. You've heard about the chicken and the egg, right? So I say to the unbeliever, to the people who believe, to, to say Thomas Huxley, uh, which came first, the DNA or the protein? And they had this RNA world theory, which doesn't make any sense at all. Because what, what they believe is, by random collisions of molecules, uh, 25 million pieces of information that came to form the DNA. And the DNA that was created was created in the same exact location as the proteins that would have been made by the DNA, but these proteins weren't made by the DNA because the DNA didn't even exist to make the proteins. So the protein that would have made the DNA and the DNA that would have made the protein both would have to be simultaneously, separately synthesized in the same place, and then boom, it starts being alive. Now, if you didn't get 
Everything I just said, do you get the idea? Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it takes an incredible amount of faith to be an atheist. I don't know how they sustain this faith. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, a, a kind of blind faith that doesn't even make sense. I would say it's irrational. It's irrational to believe that this could have happened by just random uh, molecules. And that's just talking about the DNA and, and the proteins, never mind all the other substances that would simultaneously have to have been created by random things bumping into each other in the same place, all assembled, surrounded by a membrane, and now the thing starts crawling around. Now, now nature creates order. Nature spontaneously creates order. Those, those crystals represent a lot of order. But what nature never does is create information. There is no example, no demonstration of nature creating information. We're talking about 25 million pieces of information. All right? It, it's kind of like building a, a house of cards. Uh, imagine you take 25 million cards, you throw the wind at it, and suddenly this house of cards made out of 25 million cards would assemble itself. The thing is, the energy that would be required to create the house would destroy it instantly. This doesn't make much sense. Uh, there's so many other factors in the creation of life. Even Charles Darwin said, it's rubbish to think about the origin of life. Even he said that. All right, uh, let, let's talk about a little bit of physics. Now, up until the 40s and 50s, Physicists were unanimous in this. They said the universe was eternal. The universe had, had existed forever. Now, why did they believe that? Was it because of evidence the universe was eternal? No. It's because the alternative was uncomfortable. Because really, there's only two choices. Existed forever or created well, created causes philosophical problems for the atheist, to say the least. So they'd settled on the universe existing forever. But then in the 1920s and 30s, the fact that the universe is rapidly expanding was discovered. By the way, all along in Hebrews 11, but not all along, since around 60-something uh, AD, the Bible had said, by faith we know, the things that are seen were created from unseen things. In other words, the universe was created essentially physically out of nothing. So anyway, uh, you may not know all the science of the Big Bang model, but by the 60s, when they discovered the microwave background radiation, physicists unanimously concluded the following, which is, there was nothing, no matter, no energy, no space, even time did not exist. And then in an instant, the entire universe came into existence out of nothing, in a brilliant flash of light. All right, so physicists caught up with the Bible on that one. <laughs> All right, so the universe was created. So, by what? All right, uh, now it turns out as physicists began to study the, I guess, the history of this event, they noticed some startling facts. It turns out that the universe is governed by these four different forces, the nuclear strong force, the nuclear weak force, electrical force, all these other forces, and many other properties that cause different um, elements to form and all this kind of stuff. And what they notice is these parameters are tuned to a precision which is mind-boggling. 
All right, now, uh, that's a pretty small number. Now, do they have lottery here in Utah? Is this like the only holdout state? Good for you. All right, good for you. All right, I figure in, in California, it's like voluntary taxes. If people want to, you know, voluntary taxes. Okay, but anyway, let's just pretend you lived in a state where they do have the lottery. What if your friend won the big lotto? Your reaction? Awesome! Now, wait a minute. I thought you were a Christian. What are you playing the lottery for? All right. What if your friend won the big lottery again the next week? What if they won the big lottery again the next week? They would be in jail, don't you think? I'm I'm serious. Now, I'm going to explain this number, but this number represents winning the big lottery six weeks in a row. Let me tell you about this number. It turns out what physicists discovered in trying to describe this event, see, the universe expanding very rapidly, and yet it forms stars and galaxies and stuff like that. turns out if the force of gravity had been weaker by this fraction, then planets and stars and galaxies would have never formed. On the other hand, if the force of gravity had been stronger than it is, again, by this fraction, the universe would have collapsed almost as soon as it was created. So, first of all, why does gravity even exist? Good luck getting an atheist to explain that one. But let's just assume that it does exist. What are the chances of having gravity have the right value? There you go. It'd be like winning the big lottery six weeks in a row. Could anybody believe the universe is not designed? Could anybody rationally reach that conclusion? I say no. But it turns out that's just the force of gravity. There are over 30 parameters that define kind of the inner workings, the physics of our universe, that, that are not this finely tuned. This is the most finely tuned of them all. Uh, don't try to read that, that slide there. Uh, let's just talk about the nuclear strong force. Nuclear strong force, that's what holds the protons and the neutrons together. Now, if that force was a couple percent smaller than it is, we would have only hydrogen, which would be a problem, right? No life. It turns out if it was only a few percent larger than it is, we'd have no hydrogen, which would also be a major problem for us. And not only is the nuclear strong force fine-tuned, the nuclear weak force, the amount of electric charge. It's interesting. According to physicists, electrons were made through one process and a completely separate process made protons. And yet the number of protons and electrons are equal to something like one part in 10 to the 30th. Otherwise, I'll just say it would mess the whole thing up. I'm not going to explain why that's important, but trust me, it's important. All right. So it seems to me that as a scientist, to not believe in God borders on irrational. I I could talk about other examples. Uh, Fred Hoyle said a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology. All right. Anthony Flew. Rather than talking about Anthony Flew, I'll talk about um, my, my atheist colleague. We, we team taught uh, a science class together, uh, like a philosophy science class. And after about five or six semesters, he said, John, guess what? There's a designer. I'm like, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Uh, I'm going to skip a bunch of other examples that show clear evidence of design. So I, let's let's end out uh, Romans 120, where where Paul says that uh, basically that it's obvious that the existence of God is obvious from what has been made, so that men, human beings, are without excuse. And I would say the scientist has the least possible excuse for not believing in God. So don't be intimidated by bald men with glasses who look smart. You know what I'm saying? Don't be intimidated by these people who are trying to make you feel like it's foolish to believe in God. I'd say quite the opposite. All right. Now, I I did tell you there are two parts to my talk, so we're starting the second part. Uh, If questions come up, uh, feel free to kind of be prepared to ask the questions later. Now, so far... What do we have based on what I presented? We have a universe that was clearly created by a force of some sort that's obviously really, really smart and really, really powerful. All right, but you have to understand when I when I came to believe in God back in my sophomore year in college through studying science, I was not assuming the God of the Bible. Far from it. I, I was I found um, Buddhism or Hinduism to be more interesting, so I kind of went in that direction for a few years. But then, guess what I did? I started reading the Bible. I'll tell you a story about my good friend John Clayton. John Clayton's parents were both philosophy professors at Columbia University, kind of like your in-your-face, you know, in-your-face aggressive atheist philosophers. And he grew up with that around the house and. He was the president of the, of the Atheist Society in Indiana. He's working for Madeleine O'Hare, who only the older generation remember who she yeah. is. All right, She was the leading atheist in the country. And he was writing a book. The title of the book was The Bible, writ, a book written by ignorant people in an ignorant age. And unlike his other colleagues who would do what like my friend did in that van, he decided to actually read the Bible. And study it out. And he's your brother today. Here's Dallas McCown, uh, a famous uh, uh, evolutionist. said, Christianity is scientifically unsupported, probably insupportable, philosophically suspect at best, disreputable at worst, and historically fraudulent. And now people say these kinds of things as if, well, everybody knows this. No, everybody doesn't know this. The claim is that the Bible is historically fraudulent. Okay, like, can you give me a single example of a historical record or archaeological artifact which is in contradiction with what the Bible says happened? People say these things as if it's obvious, like everybody knows this. No, everybody doesn't know this. Now, that's a separate talk. But I believe the Bible is not, not only the most accurate and reliable ancient historical source, it's by far the most accurate and reliable historical source we have from ancient times. So why do people say this kind of stuff? I say, ask them. I asked the lady in the van, you know, who said that thing. She didn't have any answers, I'll tell you right now, especially when I read the verse, which, by the way, does not mention capital punishment, okay? It doesn't mention that. All right, philosophically suspect at best. Now, that's another presentation. 
It's about the Christian worldview. And I would happily, happily, easily set Christian philosophy up against, say, postmodern philosophy or, or, or naturalism or any other and say, uh, you know, I would happily defend Christian philosophy. But that's not my job tonight. My job is to talk about science. So I want to talk a little bit about science and Christianity. Now, a little warning here. The Bible is not a science book. All right. So, you know, you don't necessarily turn the pages and it's like you're reading a chemistry textbook. I like what Galileo said. You've heard of Galileo. He said, the Bible is written to tell us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And I think that's worth bearing in mind. The science is the, the Bible is not a science textbook. It's a God textbook. But here's the fact that I've discovered is every time the Bible makes a definite statement that has any relationship to what we know to be true from science, the Bible gets it right. Now, again, it's not a science textbook, so you know, we're not going to maybe find the details, you know, it's not going to mention dinosaurs and and bacteria and stuff like that. But when the Bible makes definite statements that relate to science, the Bible is always reliable in those areas. So I'm, I'm going to give you some examples. Now, this is Papyrus Ebers. This is a compendium. It's many pages, just one page. A compendium of, of the knowledge of medical science in Egypt, roughly 1500 B.C., which is relevant because that's roughly the time <clears throat> that Moses lived and when uh, the book of Leviticus, for example, is put together. All right? Now, if the atheists and the critics of Christianity are, tr- are correct, then the Bible should have medical ideas which are kind of crazy. To, to illustrate that, let's look at some of the prescriptions in Papyrus Ebers. To prevent hair from turning gray, anoint it with the blood of a calf, which has been boiled in oil, or with the fat of a rattlesnake. Hmm. All right, uh, uh, have you have you been using that stuff? <laughs> he, he pref- All right, all right. Here's another one: mixture six fats, namely those of the horse, hippo, crocodile, cat, snake, and ibex, to prevent hair loss. Obviously, I've not been using that stuff. All right, now. Um, you know, I, I guess the men were trying to be more attracted to the women, I guess. Uh, women, would you hang out with a guy who's got that stuff on his head? I, I don't think so. Now, we're laughing, but seriously, I mean, okay, but this is actually tragic. The average lifespan was maybe 20 years old, if that. Uh, not that people couldn't live to be 80 or 90 years old, but almost everybody died of an infectious disease of some sort. And this is the kind of... Uh, these are not for infectious diseases, but some of the medicines in papyrus ebers include lizard's blood, swine's teeth, rotten meat, uh, moisture from pig's ears. Uh, how about human excrement as medicine? Okay. And, and here's my point. If the Bible was what these people say it is, an ignorant, you know, written by ignorant people in an ignorant age, it would have stuff like this, I guarantee you. The reason is there is a significant amount of medical wisdom in the Bible. All right, uh, Exodus 15:26 is an interesting passage. One is you kind of read quickly and don't notice. It's, God says to his people, Moses says, I believe God says, 
that if you uh, if you obey the laws I'm giving you today, you will not have the diseases of your neighboring peoples. All right, and it's it's interesting. There are a number of laws in the Old Testament which have um, pretty significant medical wisdom. For example, in Leviticus 11, I'm sure everybody here is aware there's certain yes and no kind of meats there in the Bible, in Leviticus. For example, uh, beef, yes, pork, no. All right, uh, seafood, no, uh, fish with scales, yes. Now, it just so happens that every meat on the don't eat list is relatively harmful and dangerous, carrying many diseases. And every meat on the okay to eat list is relatively safe. For example, pork. Now, uh, with modern, you know, hygienic methods, and uh, but then again, with your pork, I still say cook it all the way to the middle, right? Trichinosis. There are at least 22 known diseases that are carried by pork. Now, but on the other hand, beef is safe. Even raw beef is reasonably safe, right? University of Colorado, they have their Alfred E. Packer. You ever hear of Alfred E. Packer Day? I guess he's the only person ever convicted of cannibalism in America and say so would eat like piles of raw beef. You know, uh, One time I was in Venezuela and I ordered off the menu and I, you know, I speak Spanish, but I didn't know what these things were. I said, bring me one of those. They brought me this big plate of raw beef. And I thought about Leviticus 11. I went for it, man. And I went for it. Again, shellfish, unclean. Fish with scales, clean. Now, every kind of mollusk and clam and all these things, you know, it's like playing Russian roulette, eating those things. They carry all kinds of disease. But fish with scales, safe, even raw. We call it sushi, right? Now, you could argue for luck. Now, if this was the only example, if this was the only example, then you could argue that maybe Moses got lucky or something. But what I do know is this. All the other peoples ate all these things and they were dying in droves. The Jews, followed when they followed God's commands, they did not have those diseases. Here's another example. Oh, yeah. This is uh, taken from a Jewish document, an ancient Jewish document, and it's giving medical advice here. Okay, got it? Let's look at the second one. The gnat feeble creature taking a food but never secreting it. Wait, stop there. So the claim here is that flies don't have poop. Now, is that true? That's a medical error right there. That is a science error right there. And I challenge anybody to find anything in the Bible like that, that's an obvious science error. Uh, anyway, taking a food but never secreting is specific against the poison of the viper. Now, I guess they had to keep flies in a jar because if you get bitten by a snake, you don't have time to catch flies and crush them up. So that's, that was their solution. So therefore, maybe, I don't know, maybe the Jews were somehow better at this kind of knowledge. I don't think so. All right, here's the next one. Whoever touches a dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. Must purify himself with the water on the third and seventh day. Take some hyssop, dip it in the water, sprinkle the tent, the furnishings, and the people who were there. So bottom line is, if you touch a dead body, you are unclean. You have to be completely separate for seven days from all the people, which seems you know, kind of harsh almost. Because if you prepare the body for the funeral, you can't even attend the funeral. 
Okay, well, why is that? Now, one thing, there's actually two things to notice. Number one, every one of these commandments has a spiritual meaning behind it. You know, staying away from the unclean or uh, from the dead, those who are spiritually dead. You know, let the dead bury their dead. But they also have a, 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 a health benefit. But God never said why. He didn't say why. What's he going to say? Well, you've got to watch out for those microbes, those bacteria. Uh, so so the, the principle is God says don't do it. Then guess what? Just don't do it. All right. Yeah. If you don't understand why, well, just don't do it anyway. All right. Uh, so, so that's a good idea. Now, uh, this man, his name is Ignaz Semmelweis. Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a doctor in Vienna working in a woman's hospital. This is in the 1850s. This is when germ theory was originally coming out. In his hospital there, the death rate for the women who went into the hospital was 18%. Back then, women did not go to the hospital to have babies, not because they couldn't afford the hospital, but because they couldn't afford to not go to the hospital. Because they, it, was like, it was like signing your death warrant. Now, what Semmelweis noticed, and by the way, I was teaching this lesson in Budapest a few years ago, and I mentioned that Semmelweis was from Serbia. They said, no, he's actually from Budapest. And they took me to his house there. So I now admit he's actually from Budapest. Anyway, uh, so in the hospital, what would happen is the doctors would come in in the morning. They'd examine the women who died the night before and then immediately proceed to the wards to start treating the patients. Can you imagine? So he said, whenever you touch a dead body, you're unclean. Wash your hands very, very thoroughly with soap and water. The death rate went from 18% to 4%. But 4%, that's really high still. All right? And by the way, there's another law in Leviticus that says when a woman gives birth, she's unclean. Or when she has her period, she's unclean. Why would God say that? Because everybody knows that God hates women. No. No, because he loves them. Because when a woman gives birth, and even when she has her period, she's extremely susceptible to many different kinds of infections. So Semmelweis says, even when you touch a live patient, clean your hands very thoroughly with soap and water. The death rate went down to one half of 1%. Wow. Medical science had no answer. The, the doctor was saying, oh, it's constipation. They said, oh, the women are just hysterical. Typical male attitude there. <laughs> All right. Anyway, they should have had, uh, uh, you know, a... a, a a parade and honor Semmelweis. Instead, the doctors fired him because they refused to wash their hands. And he died of an infection just a, a couple years later. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, the prescription is ashes from the red heifer, water, and hyssop. Now, hyssop is like, it's kind of like thyme, you know, T-H-Y-M-E. It's a very, very oily plant which, when mixed with water and ashes, makes soap. But it just so happens that hyssop, the oil of hyssop, contains 10% thymol. Oops, there I go again. 10% thymol. So what's thymol? Well, I teach organic chemistry. And we call these things phenols. 
And when I get to the chapter on phenols, the first property of phenols I mention is that they're antiseptics. Phenols are not poisonous to humans, but they kill bacteria. So God's prescription, if you touch a dead body, is to wash the entire body and everything you touch with a powerful antibacterial soap. Ah, okay. That's starting to make sense. Do you think Moses knew anything about thymol? (laughs) Here's another one. Skin diseases. The Bible's prescription here was very harsh. Complete quarantine. Complete quarantine. By the way, leprosy was the most feared of ancient diseases. Not because it killed the most. Cholera killed many more. Uh, Yellow fever killed many more. But it's the way it killed people. It's it's a horrible way to die. All right, we're going to skip that slide very quickly. Now, there were some monks in Scandinavia in the 16th century. They were reading Leviticus. And they said, let's try it and see if it works. Let's try quarantine. Within about 100 years, leprosy had virtually disappeared in Europe. So there you go. I see the wisdom in that. All right, another one. The life of every creature is in its blood. Leviticus 17, 14. And this is sort of cool because, again, the Bible doesn't explain why the life of every creature is in the blood. And also, do you see a spiritual kind of underlying symbolic meaning when it says the life is in the blood? Get it? Now, do you know what the most common medical treatment in Europe was in the 18th and 19th centuries? It was bloodletting. Because medical science said, if you have an infectious disease, the disease is in the blood. Makes sense. That would explain how it spreads through the body. The Bible said the life is in the blood. Medical science says the disease is in the blood. Drain the blood. Now, who was right on this one? Well, I mean, if you have an infectious disease, don't you think you want to maybe have your immune system kind of get kicking in there? And where's the immune system? In the blood. All right, so I'd say I'd go with the biblical wisdom on that one as well. Okay, last example. So we have plenty of time for Q&A. This actually isn't in Leviticus. This is in Genesis. goes back to circumcision. All right, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Ouch. In fact, circumcision is somewhat dangerous. All right. Why circumcision? And why the eighth day? Well, why circumcision? Well, what was almost everybody back then dying from? Some kind of bacteria or fungus. And bacteria and fungus live wherever it's dark, warm, and wet. All right, so what's the darkest, warmest, wettest place on a guy? All right, you know what I'm talking about. How many lives were saved? Mainly female lives, mainly women's lives were saved. Now today, circumcision has less medical advantage than back then because you guys take a shower, right? Right? Uh, yes, you do. He, you, all right, good. But did you know mul- 
multiple studies have shown that AIDS transmission from male to female goes down by at least 60% if the male has been circumcised, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Now, actually, the Bible has a different prescription, which is even a better way to prevent AIDS going around. Yeah, um, you know, not having sex with a bunch of different people. Wouldn't that be a, a better way to prevent AIDS getting around? I think so. But why the eighth day? That's the mystery. Why the eighth day? You know, for the Jews, the twelfth day, you know, the twelve tribes, or the third day, you know, the, the, the something like that. Why the eighth day? The number eight didn't have any particular significance for the Jews. Well, I don't know. And the Bible, as usual, the Bible doesn't say. But I do know this. If you were to uh, circumcise a, a newborn a, a first day, that would be very, very dangerous. Because it turns out uh, that vitamin K does not pass from the mother to the child. And vitamin K is necessary to make prothrombin. Prothrombin is the protein that actually creates the blood clot. So if you were to circumcise a baby the day it's born, that would be very dangerous. Now, today when the babies are born, they give them a vitamin K shot that very day. And then let's go for it. Let's do the circumcision if you're going to do one at all. To be honest with you, it's, it's not medically really that necessary, uh, especially not for a Christian child, hopefully. Uh, but anyway... Um, so, so anyway, uh, so where's the vitamin K come from? It comes from bacteria that live in your large intestine. Well, where do the bacteria come from? From baby eating from mommy. So what happens is uh, the prothrombin level is low when the baby's born. It actually drops even lower because they have no vitamin K. And they start to produce vitamin K. And the prothrombin goes to, up to higher than normal levels. And then it drops back down to... Uh, equilibrium levels. I'm going to show you a graph of prothrombin in the child versus time from when it was born. And here it is. Okay. Wow. So from the day a male child is born to the day they die, guess what the safest day to do a circumcision would be? The ninth day statistically would be just as good as would the seventh day. All right. So how did Abraham figure this one out? Do you think he maybe did a double blind experiment? <laughs> so we're going to circumcise all the children for the next five years on the first day. And, and then, you know, we'll, and, all right, then we'll do the next 10 years we'll do on the third day. I don't think so. Now, uh, so by the way, I believe the Bible is inspired by God. I believe it's fully inspired by God. Now, science points in that direction rather strongly. But let's say, here's all the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Now, the evidence for the biblical inspiration includes the scientific evidence, which is like this big compared to all the other stuff. But that was the topic you asked me to speak on tonight, so I did. And I say, even from scientific knowledge itself, I say, which God? created the universe? I say the one who caused the Bible to exist. All right. So again, to, to kind of summarize here, uh, do yourself a favor. Don't be intimidated by these people who want to give you the impression that if you were really, really smart and really highly educated, you'd begin to realize, well, obviously the Bible can't be true. Really? Can you give me a single example? 
Okay. So, uh, do we have time for question and answer? It is Friday night. Sure, let's go for it. All right. Uh, it could be a, a biblical question. It could relate to our topic. You know, the, some of the obvious science kind of questions, but it could be a theological or biblical topic. You know. Go for it. Yeah. I, uh, well, let, let me give you a very, very brief, very brief history of the relationship between science and Christianity. Now, first of all, if it were not for Christianity, we would not have science. That is a fact of history. All right, and and I, I teach the, my intro to scientific thought, I, and just last week I went over this because the fact is. All ancient peoples viewed the universe as chaotic and governed by forces that were unpredictable inherently. But the Bible pictures a universe which is governed by one unchanging creator. So Roger Bacon in 1274 published his magnum opus in which he proposed, therefore, the universe should be governed by physical laws that are also unchanging that govern the whole universe. So... Historically, Christianity is the genesis of science itself. Roger Bacon also proposed not only should the universe be governed by an unchanging set of physical laws, those laws should be understandable by human beings, number two, and then number three, they should be mathematical in form. Those are the basic presuppositions of science. All three of them are the direct result of the, the, the Christian worldview. Now, so where does skepticism come from? Well, there, there's, uh, you know, I say from Satan, but, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a biased perspective, okay? <laughs> so uh, historically, uh, it, it goes back to, let, let's, to, in order to simplify the story, let's talk about Isaac Newton. By the way, Isaac Newton was a believer. He published more literature on the Bible than on science. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, uh, he had a, a skeptical view about how God would interact with the world. And he created the idea of the mechanical universe. So he proposed that the, that the physical universe operates according to laws which don't require intervention. So science stopped invoking uh, supernatural forces. So remove the supernatural from the physical universe, which I believe is appropriate in that these laws do seem to operate kind of on their own. Let's fast forward another 130 years. We have Laplace, the French mathematician and, and, and uh, mathematical physicist who wrote a book in which he proposed that you could use the laws of physics and math to kind of rewind the tape to predict everything that ever has happened and everything that ever will happen. And so kind of unlike uh, Newton, who believed God created everything, it's all designed. So here you have Laplace in the 18-teens proposing a full skeptical perspective. The famous story was that he presented this to, to Napoleon, and Napoleon asked him, so where's God in all this? And he said, I have no need of that hypothesis. So it is a bit ironic in a way that Christianity, which 
basically was the genesis of science itself, created a, 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 produced a set of physical laws that left room for skepticism, if you will. But then, but then it all kind of turned around because it's in the 30s, 40s, and 50s where these kinds of information began to come out. And basically, what science did was, before, we were the center of the universe, right? That's what they thought. And then, well, we're not the center, the sun is, but at least we're going around the center. Then we found out, oh, actually, our star is one of, you know, billions and insignificant star in this huge galaxy. Then we found out, oh, there's other, there's hundreds of billions of galaxies. Suddenly, we're so insignificant, we don't matter at all. But then if you start looking at the laws of the universe, you realize, no, actually, the entire universe is about us. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches. To me, Genesis 1 and 2 are the most brilliant, amazing uh, uh, philosophical statements ever published by anybody anywhere. And what it tells us is, first of all, the universe was created. Cha-ching. Uh, it was created by God. A personal God, not an impersonal sort of non-entity God like Hinduism or Buddhism would say. And and it also tells us why the universe exists. Exists so that God could love us and so that we could love him. All right, so that's my answer. Did I? All right, good. Next question. Do you think? Hmm? Do you think that Christianity should be separated from scientists? Uh, that was a good question. Let me re- re- repeat the question. He said, should science be separated from Christianity? I believe in most settings in the university, uh, there's relatively little overlap. So, so for example, um, science is used to describe the natural world. And even Galileo said, the Bible is written to show us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So in questions relating to physical problems, Galileo suggested we should let the the physical universe reveal itself. So uh, on on most questions related to physical and measurable things, I think science should be kind of given first dibs on those questions. All right, but then uh, uh, the Bible deals with the questions that matter. Like, for example, in my Science 110 class, I say, all right, science is probably the best means ever devised to answer the questions like when, where, how many, by what means. But does anybody care about those questions? The questions you care about are, why am I here? What is my purpose? What should I do? What is my value? And, and science is useless. Science says you're worth about $4.32. A little carbon, a little nitrogen, a little iron. The Bible says you are more valuable than the entire world. Science says, if it says anything about purpose, it says your purpose is to make as many copies of your DNA as possible. Now imagine that. Imagine if your purpose was to make as many copies of your DNA as possible. Think about the criminal acts that would be justified. All right, but the Bible says your purpose is to be loved by God and to love him. So I believe in, in the questions that actually matter, such as is there a greater reality? What is the nature of reality itself? What is the nature of a human being? What are we? 
bags of chemicals or persons. So I believe in every question that people care about, the, the Bible does a vastly better job than science could ever. But in my personal opinion, probably we should let science get the first go at questions of things like origin of species and history of the universe and, and you know, and, and the nature of, you know, curing diseases, these kinds of things. There are a few questions where science and religion will always come into uh, I, conflict, I guess, if you want to call it that. The three questions that I think science and religion will never, neither will ever give up on is, is creation of the universe, creation of life, and what is a human being? Those are three questions where science is going to want to try to answer that question, and Christianity also tries to answer that question. And their answers may not completely conflict. All right, uh, let me give you an example. So uh, I, I do this in my, in my philosophy of science class. I'll ask them, all right, uh, l- let me ask a very simple question, common sense question. All right, two possibilities. I am a body or I have a body, all right? I am a body or I have a body. Now, if you go with science alone, what's the answer? I am a body. I am chemicals. I am neurons firing. You should say to your significant other, I chemical you. I I neurotransmitter you. (laughs) Love is meaningless. Justice is nonsense. Uh, Human rights has no basis. All right? Uh, But everybody, see, even the atheists, if you catch them off their guard, even they know that they exist. I exist. I have a body. All right, so so there's one area. What is the nature of a human? What what are we? There, I think science and religion are probably going to continue to uh, maybe have some different answers. Okay, good. Uh, I'll take I'll take you first. Then back there. No, you first. Ladies first. That's what I grew up with. So also with that, like the origin of humans, yeah. you know, with, with Darwin and yeah. starting with who, and then, you know, they find, they're finding all these, you know, uh-huh. of Neanderthals yeah, yeah. and all that. What would you say to that? Uh, first of all, there's two separate questions. Uh, Darwin did not address the question of origin of life. He didn't. He addressed the question of origin of species, mm-hmm. not the question of origin of life. In fact, we even saw the slide. He said it's rubbish to even talk about that. Darwin, in his book, Origin of Species, clearly laid out his understanding that life was created by the creator. Now, he, he grew up, I mean, he, he, he was even studied for the, he, his, his degree was not in science. His, his degree was in theology. He was trained to be a minister. Now, he left Christianity per se. He was more, kind of like a deist. But anyway, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm losing track here. The question was, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I would say that is an absolute slam dunk that life was created by a supernatural creator. That's a slam dunk. All right. Now, as far as the origin of species go, you know, I would say uh, evolution is a good theory. I mean, uh, a theory by its very nature, you have evidence and data, you have possible explanations. And the fact is the only 
theory out there that effectively explains the data, such as fossils and DNA, is, is the theory of evolution. Uh, and so my perspective on this is God created evolution, so why not just give him credit for it instead of getting all defensive about it? Now, in Genesis, it, it says God created life, and life first in the water, then on the land, and you know more uh, complex forms of life, and then last of all, us. Sounds about right. It kind of sounds like what science seems to say. It doesn't say how God did it. And so I, I prefer to let science kind of inform us maybe a bit. Uh, the, 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 the fossil evidence doesn't really prove common descent, but, but the DNA evidence very strongly suggests something like common descent. Now, I believe God's intervened at different times, and I, I don't think we would have come just by random chemical events. Now, let me tell you this. I believe in Adam and Eve. I believe the first man and first woman created by God. However, let me tell you why I believe in Adam and Eve. I believe in Adam and Eve because it's in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. All right? That's why I believe that. I believe that a, you know, intelligent, self-aware, God-image creatures could not have been produced by any kind of evolution. How could evolution create what we are? This, is, this makes no sense. So I, I believe Adam and Eve were created. Now, I believe in Adam and Eve, I'll just tell you right now, because it says so in the Bible, all right? And the Bible's inspired by God. To me, that is, I mean, there's a few things I know. One thing I know is the universe was created. Another thing I know, life was created. Another thing I know, Jesus was raised from the dead. That's, that's for sure. And the Bible's inspired. So, you know, so to some extent, the Bible describes it that way, and I happen to believe it. All right? And uh, one thing that some Christians get in a bit of hot water on is they forget to separate the things they know from the evidence from the things they know by faith. All right? So the evidence tells me the Bible is inspired, that, that, that the universe is created. Uh, but I believe in heaven by faith. I've, I, I don't have any science experiments on that one. All right? And so I believe in heaven by faith. I believe that God uh, is in control by faith. I believe that God answers my prayers by faith. And, 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 you know, so Adam and Eve are in that category for me. All right? So um, as a, uh, I, I see no reason as a Christian to say evolution is bad or Satan's invention or something like that. To me, if God created that awesome means by which species can change over time, in response to changing the environment? Thank you, God. All right, now there are probably sub-questions I didn't quite get to, but I'll take, I said that one back here, and then you'll be next. Go ahead. All right, so earlier you said that Christianity gives birth to science. Yeah. Um, will you just explain that a little more? Yeah, okay, again, all ancient peoples viewed the world as being governed by forces which were essentially unknowable in which, you know, you know, whether you're an animist or a polytheist or a pagan or whatever, all ancient peoples viewed the physical world as governed by uh, incoherent, uh, you, know, uh, you know, forces. All right? They did not recognize that there were, there were laws that govern what happens. So, Historically, where did this idea come from? 
Where did the idea that the universe is governed by laws like gravity and, you know, these things that we have found in science? I'm telling you, it came from Christian theology. Uh, and And I can tell you the names. Uh, William of Ockham, uh, Roger Bacon. These are philosophers, Christian monks, Christian philosophers, 13th, 14th century, who said, that's the nature of God. And God created us to know him both through his special revelation called the Bible and through his general revelation called nature. So they, they concluded not from studying nature, but from studying the Bible, that the universe should be governed by these laws. They made that proposal. It's still working pretty well. I mean, so historically, it was Christian theologians who invented science based on Christian presuppositions. Yes. The who empire? The Safavid, the Abbasid empire. Yeah, during okay. The age of Islamic empire in general. They had like multiple advancements in technology. And yes. Like, how would you respond to that? Respond to what? I mean, what's there to respond to? Just like more and more inventions and theories and scientific experiments and advancements in technology. Okay, so basically what you're saying is in what we'd call the Middle Ages, the Arab cultures were more advanced than the European cultures. That is true. That's true. That I mean, awesome. In fact, it, you know those crusades. We think that the we we white Western you know people think that that the uh, that the uh, uncivilized people were being conquered by the civilized people. It's the other way around. The Europeans were the relatively uncivilized people trying to go after the civilized people, the the, the Muslims, if you will. All right. Well, that's true. What's that? What's that, that have to do with what I said? The fact is the Arabs did not invent science. They did not. It was invented. So, I mean, there were advanced cultures in India. There were advanced cultures in China. Uh, That's true. I'm not sure what that has to do with what I said, which is historically science came from a monotheistic presupposition. In principle, science could have come out of Islam. In principle... It could have come out of Islam because Islam also assumes an un, you know, one single creator of the entire universe. Now, it, that's not how it happened. It, I'm telling you how it happened. So there's nothing about Islam that would necessarily preclude science having come from that instead of from Christianity. All right? But the fact is, historically, it came from Christianity. Yes, it is true that in the... Uh, uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th century, generally Muslim-dominated uh, cultures were more advanced than European cultures. That's true. That, that doesn't really affect what I said here, but it's, it's, it is true. Uh, you know, philosophy, they were more advanced. Literature. Right. When we, when we rediscovered Aristotle, we, I say we, we. We is me, us white people, sorry. Those of you who aren't white, when we white people, sorry. That was a very culture and sensitive thing. But when we uh, rediscovered the Greek philosophers, it was from Arab uh, interpreters. Yes. All right, uh, another one here, and then I'll come back over here. Yeah. My question, oh, and I just want to say thank you for your presentation. Sure. Your presentation had a lot to do with like the physical evidence 
physical evidence for God in science. Okay. And I appreciate that. Um, have you ever found a scientist that had a good argument for, like, a scientific physical argument for love or for the soul? Um, a good one. <laughs> a good one. All right. Uh, uh, Dawkins. Uh, Dawkins creates his half-baked theories about this stuff. Uh, you can you can read his stuff. And, and I mean, by the way, when it comes to evolution, Dawkins knows what he's talking about. The guy's the guy is pretty smart. I mean, he's he's a he's a very um, he knows a hundred times more about evolution than I do. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, but but then he makes the mistake of trying to delve into areas of philosophy and religion. And at that point, he starts making a, a bit of a fool of himself, honestly. So, so he's tried to create these ideas of memes and how how these memes infect populations to create ideas about religion and ideas about morality, and and, and he he tries to argue uh, for uh, love evolving uh, through populations, you know, kind of you know, it's kind of like ants, you know, they kind of they they have this social structure and. and it, you know, if if you th- if somebody thinks that explains love, uh, you know, I disagree because I believe that God is love. I believe love is not chemicals. I believe love is not neurotransmitter. I I believe that love is a thing, and I, I would take the Christian view of love to be a much better description, a much more effective description of what love is. Number one, and number two, why we love. All right, uh, and I believe science falls flat on its face of trying to use you know evolution to explain love. Could evolution explain some kind of social behaviors? Yes, it could. I think evolution could explain social behavior. I don't believe it could explain love. All right. Okay. There's okay. Another question over here. Great. Yeah, which is it? The other question is, does it matter have to do with both of them? Hmm? Matter? Matter? Yeah. Now, again, I believe the uh, he's asking, what does matter have to do with that? I believe that we have a body. All right, and, you know... You know, I, I can make my finger. It, it, it works. There's the, this this you know, brain, but I believe that we are not merely atoms and molecules and neural networks. I believe that we that we have things like conscience. We have free will. I, I believe that we are self-aware, and you cannot explain self-awareness by material entities. It, it doesn't even make sense. How can a material thing be self-aware? It, that's that's a contradiction in terms. All right. Uh, by the way, uh, we are uh, the organization that uh, I'm president of. Jan's on our board. We we put on a, a couple of debates on the on the question of the existence of God. Uh, Michael Shermer took the negative view. Uh, he's the head of the American Skeptic Society, and so he's debating against uh, Doug Jacoby. He's here not too long ago, I guess. And uh, it was interesting because uh, Michael Shermer wins most of his debates. 
And the reason he wins most of the debates is he debates these young earth creationist people who want to argue that the earth is only a few thousand years old and the Bible agrees with that. And obviously he wins that debate pretty easily, all right? But then he comes up against Doug and he'd say such and such. Doug would say, yeah, I agree with that. Well, that's true. Of course. Yes, of course. And, and, and you know what? He only had one argument. He literally only had one argument. His argument that, does, that God does not exist is that's the fallback option. That was literally his only argument. Other than a bunch of rhetoric and, and funny jokes and really good one-liners, his only argument was, unless you can prove that he does exist, he doesn't exist. Well, that's circular reasoning. If there ever was circular reasoning... I was I was watching a BBC program uh, a few years ago, and it was uh, BBC is they, they do some awesome stuff. And so it was kind of like smart people on trial. I, I can't remember the name of the show. So what they had was um, they bring in different intellectuals, and they had a panel, and they start asking them questions. And so this one was a theist, which is what we are, against an atheist. And they brought the atheist guy in there, and he's he's you know it's like. You guys, man, I got this covered. He didn't know it was coming. So they asked the guy, so give us your, your main position. He said, everything that is real is measurable. In fact, anything that is not measurable, by definition, is not even real. So therefore, I am a body. Okay, got it? So then they asked him, well, how do you know that? Well, well you know, the, 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 the Muslims and the Middle East and the Crusades and... Uh, <laughs> What's that have to do with the question? Our question is, how do you know the only things that are real are physical things? Well, you know, my grandmother this, and you know, these people here. And they said, excuse me, sir, uh, we're the question panel. You provide the answers. If you're not going to answer our question, please just step down. He said, well, I guess I just believe it. <laughs> wow. That's what his entire worldview comes down to. Like I said, it takes a lot of faith to maintain an atheist worldview. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling they can do it. Now, for you and I, if you ask us why we believe what we believe, but most of us have been around for a while, say, do you have 10 hours so I can start, you know, I can start giving you the reasons for that, the reasons for belief? Oh, that's the name of one of my books over there. All right, anyway. Okay. One or two more questions? Yes, go ahead. And so a few years ago, I read Thomas Aquinas' cosmological argument. Yeah. And from there, I realized that what he was arguing for was the God of the gap, that the, that God exists because we have scientific things we can't explain. So could you talk about like that? Well, that's not exactly the cosmological argument. Or not, well, that's, that's what I got from it. That's, yeah, that's yeah. That's a lot of the things oh. that he had said. I, uh, for the rest of you, the cosmological argument, this is a logical argument for the existence of God. And Thomas Aquinas is the greatest advocate in all history for essentially using logic and reason to prove God as the basis for establishing Christian belief. Uh, he's a classic apologist. Now, the, the cosmological argument is something like this. Uh, every, everything has a cause. All right, Everything that exists has a cause. The universe exists, therefore the universe was caused. Now, um, it, it turns out that um, uh, um, Craig, um, William Lane Craig, came up with a slightly 
a, a better version of that. And basically, William Cra- Lane Craig argued that everything that begins to exist is caused. Because philosophers say, well, what about the number three? The number three was not caused. All right, uh, the, the circles weren't caused. So you could argue some things, something like mathematical kinds of things would exist. You know, it, it, you know, the number two was not created. Okay. Now, for most of us, we wouldn't worry about this argument. But, but to be honest with you, that seems to be a possible counter to Aquinas's argument. And so uh, William Lane Craig. Uh, created a slightly adapted, it's called the Kalam cosmological argument, which says everything that begins to exist is caused. The universe began to exist, therefore it was caused, therefore God exists. All right? Awesome. I mean, uh, that doesn't prove God exists, all right? It does not prove. Uh, You can't prove... In, in a sense, you can prove equilateral triangles have equal angles. You can prove that. Uh, you know, but you can't prove the existence of God. All you can do is you can say, given everything we know about reality, what's the most reasonable conclusion? So if, if, if somebody is brought to that conclusion through the cosmological argument, which I believe is an excellent argument. It's, it's an excellent argument. I know of literally nothing that began to exist that was not you know, caused to exist. In fact, I can't even conceive of it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. you know. And then, of course, people say, well, then who created God? And there's that whole question. Uh, so I believe that cosmological cosmologic argument is an excellent argument. And, uh, but anyway, so the way you're describing it is not how either Thomas Aquinas would put it or, for what it's worth, uh, William Lane Craig. Well, but that's that's that, that's the thing is the cosmological argument isn't even about the god of the gaps. All right, uh, you could maybe say the the teleological argument would be a god of the gaps. That's that's another argument. The, the teleological argument is the argument from design. All right. In fact, that's what I presented here. I presented a version of the teleological argument. To me, I don't know. I, th- I think it's a pretty good argument, actually. And, but uh, so you could you could say my claim that life had to be created by a supernatural creator. You could argue that's a gaps type argument. I, I just say the gap is infinitely big, so it's a pretty good argument. All right. Now, but here's the thing: is uh, sort of the, the the creationist camp have tried to use gap arguments to disprove evolution. And those gap arguments against evolution have a very bad habit of, of not working very well. So I would say uh, a gap-type uh, argument should be used with very, very, very great caution. All right? Now, sorry if that went over the heads of a few of you out there, but that, that's a great question. All right. Yeah? So how do you separate faith versus fact because for a, what do you mean a, I'll give an example he showed that um, in one of the theories like medicine work like you put fly crushed flies for yeah. snake bite and it doesn't work but at the same time when Moses was there when the Israelites were bitten with snakes they had to see the 
serpent that's made of bronze and right. God came. You understand? So that's faith right. and fact. So how do you defend that? Well, I would I would go to Hebrews 11, verse 3, which are you going to come to church on Sunday morning? Yeah. Right, I'm going to preach from Hebrews 11, 3. And faith involves things that cannot be seen. All right? And if you can see it, arguably, that's not faith. All right? I mean, almost by definition. And so, um, so in other words, I believe that when I die and my body rots, I will still exist. All right? And I, I that, from a scientific perspective, that's kind of almost crazy, you know, seriously. I mean... You know, we all know the body rots and the the atoms kind of spread around and, you know, gooey stuff. And it's, it's not looking too good for you there, you know. <laughs> and so, but I believe that I li- will live even though I die. You know why I believe that? Because Jesus said to, was it Mary or Martha? I can't remember. Whatever. Was it Mary? Thank you. Jesus said to Mary, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. He said that. I, I could, if I could accept that statement, it would have to be on faith, right? So what's he do a few minutes later? He says, Lazarus, come out. Now that's a miracle. And that, that miracle alone proves that Jesus had supernatural powers. And so it's not exactly a huge leap for me to go from there to say, you know what, Jesus is probably who he said he is. One of the things he said he is, is the resurrection and the life. But that is faith. That is plain and simple faith. There are no facts, you know, that says, I will be raised from the dead. In fact, all the scientific facts kind of scream in the opposite direction, don't they? So, yeah. Uh, But the thing is, I would argue that what we need to do is we need to use those facts as a as a foundation for more faith. All right, so you could say, well, uh, faith involves things you can't see. The thing we're talking about tonight are things you can see. So why even talk about that? Because faith has nothing to do with that. Well, I'd say well, if those things give you more faith, then what you should do is step out further on faith. So the things that you know, so these kinds of evidence allow me to. Uh, have more faith and hopefully to actually act on that faith instead of just sit around, boy, I sure, I sure believe all this stuff, to actually do some things. Okay, so the, the, the connection between faith and fact is, uh, fact says my faith is not a blind faith. In fact, it's very far from blind faith. It's far from blind faith. It's, it's faith based on evidence, but it's still faith. And faith is faith. And we're not saved by fact, we're saved by faith. All right. Uh, okay. Um, we'll take one more question. <laughs> he loves physics. I hear you to say, real and unreal. Say what? Real and unreal. Yes. But it couldn't follow you up after. Uh, real and unreal. In what context was I talking about real and unreal? Recently, I read an article in a magazine. Yes. Which the astronomers can find out at this point 
Yeah, okay. So is that a question? Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, he's talking about, uh, it goes back to Albert Einstein who proposed the, the idea of gravity waves and that remained unproved until what, about two years ago? And they detected gravity waves that came from the collision of two black holes. I don't see how that has anything to do with Christianity one way or another. It's just that's, it's sort of cool, you know. Um, so now we have a, a... Now, the basis for the theory to explain the nature of gravity, which remained a, arguably unproved in experiment, now we have an experiment that shows that. But to me, that has nothing to do with Christianity other than it's sort of cool that we now understand how gravity works. Well, gravity's real. I mean, you know, gravity's real. All right? God is real, gravity's real, the Bible's real, they're all real. I mean, uh, there's different kinds of real. I, I, I suppose you could argue there's different kinds of real. There are spiritual realities, there are physical realities. Uh, the Bible declares straight up front in Genesis 1 that there's both a spiritual and a physical reality. They're both real. All right, so again, I don't, I don't know how to respond to your point other than to say... Um, Unreal. Okay. What about unreal? Maybe talk to them afterwards. Yeah, let's talk afterwards because I don't see I don't I don't see a question to be answered to to be honest with you. Okay. All right. Uh, it's quarter of nine. All right. One more question. I'll but I'll make it quick. It's getting late. It is Friday night. It's not that bad. But one more question. That is a great question. So he's saying, if if we have a body and we're not a body, so how's that work? That is a great question. Now, so I have to talk about neuroscience. Uh, the last, oh, say, 30 years or so has been kind of, in science, the generation of biotechnologies and this incredible growth in our understanding of sort of the workings of, of genetics and so many new technologies. I believe the next wave is neuroscience. That, that, that's where we're going to see these, these lightning uh, growth. And the problem with neuroscience as a field is that of all the fields of science, neuroscience is owned by pure materialists more than any of the other sciences. That, that, that scares me, to be honest with you. So almost all neuroscientists are completely wedded to this idea that the only things that are real are physical things. They have a purely deterministic, they, they, they feel like they've proved there's no soul, they feel like they've proved there's no such thing as free will, and that couldn't possibly be farther than the truth. Here's my perspective on this. I believe the human brain is, an, is a God-experiencing machine of incredible, extraordinary complexity. So our brain is a machine designed to essentially make the God-body connection. I don't believe that memory is a purely physical thing. 
and I believe we have a soul and we have a spirit, and yet when you're praying, a certain part of the brain lights up. They would argue, therefore, prayer is just a bunch of, you know, silly waste of time stuff. I'd say, no, I mean, isn't that so awesome that God created a brain with a little section in it designed to kind of eat? Because the bottom line is, when you're praying, there's actual chemicals released. That doesn't, that's not proof against the soul. That's evidence for the soul. I suggest you go to my website. Uh, actually, go, if you go to my college website, which is not hard to find, uh, uh, um, John Beggs, he's a, he's a physics professor at the University of Indiana University who does neuroscience research, and he gives a lecture called Neuroscience, colon, Room for the Soul. And he argues against this pure deterministic view of neuroscience, that the brain is merely you know, a neural network. He argues that everything we know about the brain says that the brain is a God-experiencing uh, interface, essentially, between spiritual reality and physical reality. And I believe he's got it nailed. Right? Now, again, that, that's, that's not really a scientific statement. That's, that's a statement kind of on the fringe of science, which involves uh, some openness to some other things that these, these atheist neuroscientists are probably not going to be open to no matter how much you talk about it. So I'd say we need some Christians to become neuroscientists. We really desperately do. All right, thank you for your attention. Uh, we'll see a lot of you tomorrow morning. much for talking about God and science and science in the Bible. Um, hopefully that was very helpful for you. Um, I know uh, John will be here for a few minutes afterwards to answer some questions. He has some, uh, some of his books and some other books of other authors that he recommends on the table over there for sale. Um, I did want to ask both uh, John and his wife Jan to come up for a moment. We did have a little